whole sermon to catch our breath. <laughs> yeah. changed today. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Well, it's a great honor of mine to be able to be back in the pulpit this Sunday. Uh, The past two weeks, um, even though I've been here, I have not uh, been preaching. And, And I'm thankful to be able to to finish out this, this series with you guys this Sunday. Because as many of you know, we're wrapping up a small kind of summer sermon series, which we have entitled Gospel Church or Gospel Driven Church, where we're looking at a few passages in the book of Acts, and we're trying to draw out and see what are the core principles that shaped the early Christians, that shaped the early church. Though there was like some unique factors, right, that led to the book of Acts, right? There were some unique things that happened with those first century Christians and how they got started, right, and how they operated. But I believe what we've been seeing is though there's also these timeless truths that, that any church that wants to stand upon the foundation of Christ and his gospel, that we are called to continue as they did in their day and we will do in ours. So we've been highlighting a few of those this summer. But I do want to just give a quick refresher on what have we been looking at. What have we been looking at over the last few weeks? In week one, we looked at Acts 4. Acts 4, where Peter and John uh, were basically, after they were commissioned by Christ to go and to, to bring the gospel to all nations, that's what they did. They went around and started preaching about the exclusivity of Jesus. Now, he alone atoned for their sins. He alone raised, was rose, risen from the grave. And it came with some consequences, didn't it? It came with some consequences from the religious leaders of the day. They were in prison. They were beaten. They were mocked. They were threatened with their life. But what we saw is Peter and John, even though all those factors were real, even though there was real danger in preaching a message about Christ and Christ alone, what did they say? said, we have to keep preaching because there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name given to men under heaven by which we must be saved. You see, we don't preach Jesus every Sunday because we hope that it's true. We preach Jesus because there's no other name. There's no other name to stand upon. Whether you find yourself a Christian this morning, or maybe you're not quite sure where you're at, and, and this is a safe place for you to investigate, who Jesus is, but you have to know that if we want to be a gospel church, then we have to build that upon the gospel of Jesus and Jesus alone. Now in week two, we looked at how the message of that gospel not only goes out to all people to believe in it, so it's personal, but it's also relational. That the gospel not just only saves you from the wrath of God, as glorious as that is, but it also saves you to a people, to a family. And so we looked at how a gospel church then is united around the gospel, and it creates a committed family 
to one another. A family committed to helping each other grow in Christ, follow Christ, as we're all trying to go in the same direction. Then last week, Justin continued our series by reminding us of the power of the gospel in Acts 16. That there's no person, regardless of where they come from, regardless of their history, regardless of how old they are, or what they look like, or what class they may belong to, that the gospel is for all people. Unapologetically. Maybe your life seems to be going well. You still need the gospel. Maybe your life seems to be falling apart. You still need Christ and his gospel. And we saw this in Acts 16, that it goes to all those different individuals, wherever we find ourselves, that no matter who you are, when you believe in Jesus and what he has done, there's the power of the gospel to save you right then in that moment. And this week, our final week in our series, we're going to be looking at Acts 17, you can see starting in verse 16, with a focus on how a gospel church is for all places. Because we live in a culture, in a time period in history, at least right in our, in our context, and I'm, I'm speaking mostly about American culture, where it seems like the only thing that you should actually keep to yourself, the only thing that should never leave the confines of your house is what? Your Christian beliefs. Out of all the things that which our culture says, hey, be honest about, be proud about, talk about, except for that. Don't talk about that. But is that what the Word of God encourages us to do? Is being a Christian simply meant to be this private experience, this private, isolated experience? Or maybe something that we can talk about openly in church, right? Like a place like here, but really nowhere else. Right? The gospel is not for the workplace, it's not for the coffee shop, it's not for the restaurants, it's not for the clubs that you go to. You know, in Reno, when I said clubs, I, they consider that much different than what you guys think about here, like philanthropic clubs. Anyways. I, well, I think you guys can see from the title of today's sermon of, of where I land on that question, is the gospel is for all places. That there's not one arena in which we live in as people in which we have to be afraid that the gospel can't go there or doesn't belong there. So that's what I want to look at today. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, make sure you find your way to Acts 17, starting in verse 16. And I'll be on page 926 if you're using one of those black ESV pew Bibles in the seat around you. All right, and as you're finding your way there, I want to do is, I want to, I want to pray one more time. I want to pray for you, and I ask that as I pray for you, that you would simply pray for me, and then I'll read our text for us. But let's pray together. Well, Father, as we're about to open up your word and consider how the gospel is for all places, Father, I ask that you would give us just the ability to see your text its message, its implications for how you intended us all these years later to be able to see this narrative, to see what you called Paul to do and how we can just understand the, the beauty of it, but also see how we can respond to it as well. 
And God, we need your help for that. God, I also want to pray for our kiddos and the teachers next door as they are learning about the same thing. God, that you would give not only those teachers wisdom to be able to share you and share your love for them, but God, I pray for the little hearts in that room and even the little hearts in this room for all our kiddos. God, I pray that you would give them a heart that loves you that can see how much they need you, that can see the beauty of what you did, Jesus, on the cross and how it accounted for them, too, individually. And God, I pray that for all of us that we'd be able to walk out of here loving you more than when we first walked in. And we pray this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, Acts 17, starting in verse 16. And let me just read through verse 34 for us this morning. It says, now while Paul, Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Verse 20, For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians, Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of Areopagus, said... Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought to not think, about, think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, their Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Yeah, we're thankful for God's word. 
All right, now when you, when you read historical narrative, and I've said this over the last few weeks, when you read historical narrative, which we have here, we must do that hermeneutical work to distinguish, okay, what is the author Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, what is he simply describing for all Christians to be able to know and see what happened? So what is he describing? But then also, what is he prescribing? What, by implication, does he want Christians to be built up in, in this word? Now, although Paul had unique circumstances that led to this encounter in Acts 17, I believe there are four things that we see in this text that are not just descriptive, but also prescriptive for us. Here are the four things, if you're a note-taker. One is that we are to care. We're to care about the places that we find ourselves in. Care about the communities we live in. That we are to go. That we are to apply the gospel. And that we are to call for a response. That the gospel does not just stand as a a philosophical worldview, but demands that we do something with it, each and every one of us, whether you would consider yourself a Christian or not. There's a response. So we're to care, go, apply, and respond. All right, a little background, though, in case you're not familiar with the book of Acts. Last week, where Justin left off in Acts 16, uh, Paul basically continued to go and preach the gospel to all people. He continued to preach about Jesus. And you can read that he went to a place called Thessalonica. Thessalonica, where it didn't go very well, right? He was attacked, right? There was this giant mob wanting to kill Paul. And so he left that region, he went to a region known as Berea. And there, at first, he had some success in talking and reasoning with them, but pretty soon after he was there, the mob caught up with him, and once again, Paul was basically run out of town. Now, if you look at verse 14 in your Bibles, I don't know if, at this point, Paul seemed to be pretty stressed out or just seemed to be deflated, but it seems like the other leaders who were with Paul said, Paul, you need, to, you need to get a break. You need to go. And so they sent Paul to Athens. And they said, we'll meet up with you later. So Paul goes to Athens, which is a beautiful cultural city. It was a major tourist destination in that day as it really is still today for us. It's a beautiful city. But notice in verse 16... What happened when Paul was there? What we see is that Paul, no matter where he found himself, no matter where he found himself, he still had this gospel-driven heart. He still had this heart that cared about people and what they were putting their hope and trust in. Even, even with maybe this perceived vacation that he was placed on, he couldn't shake that there's, there's something more to life than just the temporal. And so the first thing that we should notice is that Paul deeply cares about the people in which he is around. And as verse 16 says, as he was waiting for them, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Full of idols. Now, this word provoked, it's a good translation, but it doesn't quite encapsulate everything in which that the Greek term was trying to get at. Provoked here means that you're basically stirred and you're 
in your inner guts. Almost like you have a stomach ache because of what you see and what's going on. And it wasn't like Paul was provoked as in he was grumpy or mad. Right? It wasn't like he just wanted to, to stand on the corner and just yell at people that they're going to hell. But rather that he was provoked in a way that he's like, i got to do something. I see all these idols. I see all these things that they're putting their hope in. And I can't just stand by. I can't just pretend that I don't see it. So he stirred in his soul when it came to these idols. Now, real quickly... When you think of idols or you think of idolatry, we have to expand our understanding of that. We have to have a more biblical understanding of what idols or idolatry is. Because I think for most of us, right, we would probably think of a physical object, right? Maybe something made out of gold or silver or something built on the skyline. Something that people maybe would physically bow down and worship or pray or hold on to. Now, certainly, there was those physical things in Athens. There was. Uh, Historically, it says that there was about probably 30,000 little g-gods or altars built around the ancient city of Athens that people could go to and worship and pray and spend time with. So certainly, Paul had physical objects in mind when he saw that there there was idols filling the city. And Paul did care about those things. But what we see Paul go to is is he saw that there's something beneath those physical things. That idolatry is more than just an object, maybe. Because here's here's what idolatry is. This is how the Bible basically understands idolatry or idols. An idol can be anything, church. It can be anything that validates your life. Anything that defines your reality shapes your significance, keeps you up at night, or worries you the first time, the first thing that you think about when you wake up. It could be all kinds of things. And Paul knows that anything outside of right the one true God is idolatry. It's placing your hope, your faith, your assurance in something other than him. Now when we think of how that could be in our lives, Maybe we don't have physical objects that we bow down and worship or hold on to, but we have to rightly ask ourselves, is there things that drive our life, though? Is there things that shape our reality? Is it the filter in which we look through everything onto? Maybe you don't physically bow down, but maybe you make sacrifices for it. Maybe time, money. Maybe physical, right? So in our day, we're not, we may not have, right, these physical altars built around, but we have, we have altars, church. There's altars around our community. There's little G gods trying to live in the hearts of every single one of us. See, culture is always producing these alternate identities, these alternate realities, and say, hey, if you follow me, if you follow this, if you go down this road, you're going to get everything in which you really, really want. It's always been the case. And that's what Paul is seeing. He's seeing that they're, they're false roads. Roads that they think will lead to something good, right? Something life-giving. So their life will be full of purpose and value. But Paul sees that 
it actually only leads to damnation. It does not go where they think it's going to go. And so he's moved. He's moved with compassion. He's moved by looking at a culture full of idols. For us, church, for us, we can't, we can't have chronological snobbery here. We're like, how could they do that? Right? How, could they, how could they be full of idols? Because remember, idols don't necessarily even have to be a bad thing. It could be something like a family, or a career, or a, a property, right? Or, or a certain platform of influence. They may not be necessarily bad things. They could be really good things. But what we, we know from Scripture is they can quickly become God things. And what you get that significance from. And truly, it's not meant to carry that weight. That's why it will disappoint you. It cannot carry that weight, and it will disappoint you. So what did Paul do? He was moved to action. So not only did he care, but he, he went. He was moved. He, he started doing something about this. And so where did he go? It says he went into the synagogues, in the marketplace. Now the marketplace was this giant common place where basically everything happened. Right? It's where all trades happen, all business happen, all entertainment happen. It's where you would sell everything. It was right, right, that giant common square in which everybody went to. Now, truly, we actually don't have anything like that anymore. We have certain events where a lot of things happen, but it's nothing like this. It's nothing like the marketplace. It's not, we don't have any place where people go to learn information from new people all the time. We simply don't have that. But here's what I want us to see. It doesn't mean that there's not places where people go in our culture. There are places where we can go where there's other people, right? There's people talking, discussing, right? Trying to figure out how do do I navigate the waters of my life right here? And so I want us to see is that when Paul was moved, he actually went to these places, Because he knew this is where he could actually share about Christ. It says that he reasoned with them. Right? So he's having discussions. I think it's probably very far from what we imagine maybe street evangelism looking like. Paul was not standing on the corner saying, you're going to hell. But he was reasoning and saying, hey, what is it that you want? What's your goals in life? He was talking with them. He was reasoning with them. And he didn't turn his nose up at them. Even though he was in a culture that looked very different from his own worldview. Right? They worshipped things that he did not worship. He did not turn his nose up and just right, dismiss them as like, oh, here's the pagans again. I'm going to go on my way. But rather he went to them. He was moved, provoked. Are you provoked by idolatry? Not just others, but your own. And I think that's where we have to start, church. Is if we actually really want to care about idolatry, if we really want to to understand what maybe be the idols in our own culture, we have to start with ourselves. What are the things that are sneaking into our own minds, right? Our own depths of who we are, trying to convince us, hey, I I can save you here. I can give you what you really want. I can finally make you something. We have to start with ourselves. 
and, and I think one of the reasons we know this is probably how Paul did it is because elsewhere, how did Paul refer to himself? What did he call himself the chief of? Sinners, right? So he knew, and he admitted it, right, for not only the original audience that he wrote that to, but all of us for all time now, that he considered himself the chief of sinners. He knew outside of Christ that he was tempted to worship something or someone other than Christ. And so it's out of an overflow of his love for Christ and the work that Christ did in him that he went to the synagogue and marketplace and reasoned. Because evangelism, I know it's probably scary for most. And evangelism just means sharing your faith, sharing the good news. One of the reasons why maybe we're hesitant to share our faith is because we haven't done the hard work of really understanding how much God has saved us from. Evangelism always flows out of your love for Christ. Always. It's an overflow. When you are gripped by Christ's love for you, when you are gripped that he and he alone went to the cross and died in your place and gave you his righteousness by grace. Not anything that you earned, not anything that you deserve, but by grace. Grace changes you, church. It changes you. You never walk away the same. So for to continue with the narrative, Paul goes into the market. And in verse 18, it says that Paul got into quite the conversation with some different people. It points out there were some of these Greek philosophical groups. Uh, it highlights Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, the Epicureans were basically atheists of, of the day. They are the ones that really didn't believe in, in God, but believed that material was king. They really, all this life is, is about getting what you want, when you want it, with who you want it, and just living life to the fullest. That really, pleasure is the greatest goal in life. Kind of this hedonistic understanding of life. Sound familiar? Yeah, it should. It hasn't gone away. We don't call them Epicureans, but we can certainly see that that's a common worldview still today. Now, the Stoics, the Stoics were like the, the fancy intellectual types. Ones that thought reason or more information. If I just studied more, if I just studied under the right person, if I just got more information, then I would be actualized. That really the greatest goal in life is not to get material things or even physical pleasure, but rather it's about just knowing the most unlocking the codes to life. I think we see that in our day too. That it's about enlightenment, right? It's about how can I be the best version of myself? That's the key to life. But notice, even with those very, two very different worldviews, where did Paul go? Where did Paul go with them? He started talking about Jesus and the resurrection with them. Even though that they came from different backgrounds, had different worldviews, he knew that those lanes, the only place where they could go is to the gospel. So he beelined that to Jesus and his resurrection. It's why that even they would basically call Paul a babbler. It's like, what is he talking about? He just keeps going back to Jesus. Which I take great comfort in, by the way, to be if Paul was called a babbler. That when you call me babbling... I say, it's biblical. 
see it here. But here's the point. Paul did not shy away from his faith. Even when he knew he was in the midst of different people, that he cared. He went to the point, he went to Jesus. Right? He went to the resurrection. Because you have to do something with that, and we'll see that later on. But he went to the centrality of the Christian faith. So what are we to do? Whenever we reason, right, whenever we have conversations with those who may be, have a different worldview than us, one is we can acknowledge that. It's, that's okay. But our goal as a gospel church is to show them the true Christ. It's not just get into a debate about philosophical worldview, but start talking about Jesus and his resurrection. Because in our community today, I think there's a lot of people, a lot of people, church, that think that they have tried Jesus or they've tried Christianity and said, this doesn't work for me. But when you actually ask them what, what they understand about Jesus or what they understand the gospel or, or why Jesus went to the cross, they don't know. They just know that he did go to the cross, but they don't understand why. And I think what most people, when they say they reject Christianity, they're not rejecting the Christianity of Scripture. They're rejecting a fraudulent, a counterfeit Christianity because we've never actually explained it to them. Or basically, their theological worldview about what, what Christians believe has been more informed by like cartoons than actually the Bible. Church, in our community, we can't assume that anybody actually knows the gospel. Even if they say they've, they've gone to church. I've talked to so many people. And I would say this was true of myself right before I became a Christian. My freshman year of college. That I had bits and pieces of what Christianity taught and believed. But I didn't understand how it all worked together. I didn't understand how my story was actually a part of the story of all of humanity. in the story of God redeeming it. I didn't understand that. And so when I stopped assuming I understood the gospel and started actually paying attention, that's when the power of the gospel came. So let's not assume that anybody knows the gospel. We don't have to be arrogant about it. right? We don't have to be prideful. We don't have to be jerks. But simply explain who Jesus is and what he has done. Just simply. Don't try to complicate it. Christianity is not complicated. It's meant to be understood by those who... Right? We pray for our kids to understand it. And why is that? Because it could be understood by them. And that's what Paul does. He doesn't mess around with Greek philosophy. He builds, right, some, maybe as a platform to talk into it. He was well known. We even see later on that he quoted some of their poets. But he always got to Jesus and the resurrection. So let's talk about Christ. Let's talk about what he has done. Let's explain that Christianity is not a religion of do more. But Christianity is a relationship with one person who says, it is finished. Right? Let's go there. Now, let's keep going. Let's look at verse 19. Because Paul clearly did something well, right? His... his his, basically, his communication, his reasoning was finding some fertile ground. And it says that they brought him to Areopagus, sometimes referred to as Mars Hill. 
Now, this was a place, whether it was a physical hill in which basically they would have these discussions about, about worldview and understanding. Maybe Paul went there. Maybe Paul was actually dragged into a court to defend himself with a man named Areopagus. Either way, what did Paul do? He seized the moment. He says, all right, God, this is where you have me. These are the people you have me in front of. You seem to open up their ears a little bit, so I'm going to take advantage. And I'm going to share with you exactly who God is and what he has done. So he applies the gospel to their lives. Now, if you jump down to verse 22, you see that Paul is standing in the midst of them. And what does he say? He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So he tries to connect with them. Tries to find some common ground. And and he'll make mention here in just a little bit that he actually was seeing some of these different altars that were around the city. But what he's trying to do by saying they're very religious, actually, I don't think it was a put down in some ways. I think it was a a bridge to saying, hey, I think that you guys are actually trying really hard to get things right in this life. But I need to tell you that the things that you're putting your hope in, they're not going to give you what you think. But he reminds them that they, they are religious because they are wired to worship like every single one of us. We are wired to worship something. We put our hope in something. It's just a matter of what. I think in, in, in some ways then, church, every single person is religious. It's just religious in what? As I mentioned, there was around 30,000 of these altars in the city. Some of them had inscriptions made out to certain gods. Maybe the god of produce or rain or sex or prosperity. Right? All these different realities in which the human being encountered. But then Paul points out one of these altars. And what's that altar to? Well, it has an inscription that says, to the unknown God. And there was probably many of these around the city. And why did they have these altars to unknown gods? Well, because the people were so afraid that they would miss one of the gods. They were so afraid they would miss building this altar to one of the gods that that god would then be very upset, very angry, and that god's wrath then would come on his people. So they were just trying to, right, cover themselves and say, well, let's just build altars that says to the unknown God. And that way we cover all our bases. People want assurance. I think we all want assurance in life, don't we? So what, what does Paul do? He says, that unknown God, that's not actually, there's actually one God, capital G God, and guess what? He's not unknown, but he has revealed himself. He is the one true God. And so where does he go, church? He starts with creation. He goes, there is that one true God that's above all the other gods. And you know how we know it's the one true God? is because he was there in creation. He was before all things. Meaning then that everything that came after actually serves and is submissive to the one true God. If there's one God who made all things, that God then has authority. That God then has power. And that God, he goes out of his way to say, doesn't need you to make him happy. Look at verse 25. Paul says, 
He is not served by human hands. As though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This is what theologians refer to as the aseity of God. It's a fancy theological term that means God is sufficient in and of himself. That he doesn't need you to be God. He doesn't need you to serve him. He doesn't need you to build him anything. That because he was before all things completely sufficient in himself, right? We looked at this with the Trinity. Because he is those things, he doesn't need creation to give him anything or to make him happy or to make him joyful or to make him good. All of those things actually are part of who he is, which would have been quite freeing, right, to these Greek Individuals who've grown up their whole lives, right, building these altars, building these giant buildings to try to get these maybe Greek gods to live in them. And they're hearing about, for the first time, a God who doesn't need anything from them. That's not bound by their works. That's not bound by their construction. It would have been freeing that you are not a, a pawn to make God feel happy. But there's one true God who doesn't need you. That's not dependent on you. And church, that is really good news. That we may be, and I've said this multiple times already today, we are completely dependent on God for everything. But guess what? He is not dependent on us for anything. That is really good news. That the God of the Bible, the God in whom we worship, is not like us. That's really good news, church. I don't want a God that's like me. If I get hungry, it doesn't go well. If I don't get enough sleep, and I'm not talking about, like, a minor difference. I'm talking about, like, if I, if I go from, like, seven, half, eight hours to, like, seven hours, I'm a different person when I wake up. Like, I am very flippant on certain things. It's, it's sad in so many ways. But we have a God who's, who describes himself as the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's really good news. And it was good news for them. But Paul continues to apply this, this God, that, that he's all-powerful. And he's even so powerful, he uses the example that he's actually determined the allotted periods and times in which they live. That God is so in control, is so powerful, that where you live, and where, when you live there, is no accident. It's not just a random part of the cosmos, but rather intentional, that the allotted periods and times in which you live has been determined by this all-powerful God. And they needed to be reminded of that. And I think we need to be reminded of that. As a church, knowing that we have been called to this valley, for many of us, this church, this is our time, right? We live in an interesting point of human history, right? The 21st century has presented itself with all kinds of issues that we're working through. But guess what? God has determined that we would live in this time. With the hope that we have, live next to the people that we live next to, work the jobs that we have, have the family which we have, have the friends that we have right now. And we have to believe that. You know, my dad, he was a big, uh, like, Western movie John Wayne fan. And we grew up watching a lot of these John Wayne movies. And, and we used to always kind of pretend, like, what would it have looked like if, if, like, the Worko house, the Worko clan lived in the West, right, instead of the, 
the, you know, the 80s and 2000s, but rather the 1880s and early 1900s. We would dream about that. And it's fun, right, to dream about what it would look like to live in a different time of history. But it has to stay there because reality is, but we've been called to this century, in this time. If we were meant to live in the Old West, we would have. But we're called here right now. So do you know that you visit the coffee shops that you visit? You go to the restaurants that you visit. You're a part of those clubs that you're a part of. You live next to the people that you live next to. And that's been determined by God for this time right now in your life. And Paul used that to say, and those people need to hear about the gospel. They need to hear about Christ. This gospel needs to go to all places. And we have to see that too. So we have to care, right? We have to reason. We have to go. Because we live in a world, we live in a community that outside of Christ, there is no life. As much as this world wants to present all these different ways to be fulfilled, all these different ways to to have your best life now, church, we've been called to say that there's only one gospel to which we can stand on. And if there's only one gospel we can stand on, it's the same gospel we call them to stand on. And Paul even quotes some some of those Greek uh, poets in verse 28. In verse 29, to remind them, and I think kind of speak their language, speak the language of the culture, saying what you want is how God has wired you. God has wired you to worship. He's wired you to know him, to be fulfilled, but it's not going to be in those other things. It's only going to be in Christ. So he calls them. And as if we keep going, we see in verse 30, that when he applies the gospel, he calls for a response because he loves them. He says, you have to do something with this. You have to do something with the actual Christ. You have to do something with your idolatry. When you realize that everything you've been putting your hope in is, is vain and will not lead to where you want to lead, what does he say in verse 30? You, you're not ignorant anymore. You've been shown this. And he says, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And what does that mean? It means to turn from what you were putting your hope in and turn to Christ. It's not just add Christ and keep doing this. It means a physical turn and go the other direction and saying, I I see that those things only lead to death. He is life. So he goes there. And he goes there by reminding them that this This God in whom he wants them to turn to is not just a savior. He's also the judge. He's a judge that one day will judge perfect justice for what we put our hope in. And so he calls them to the carpet, so to speak. But like one of my favorite preaching heroes, Charles Spurgeon, used to say, and here's a quote, it'll be on the screen. When you realize that you have a great need for Christ, you have a great Christ for your need. See, church, bad news is necessary. But so is the good news. 
right? We tend to sometimes only do one or the other. Just say the good news, but people don't realize why they need it. Or just give them the bad news and say, sorry, but never give them the good news. Let's do both. Because this is true of every single one of us, isn't it? Christian, that you have a great need for Christ. He has shown you that. But he's also shown you that you have a great Christ for your need. So even though there will be a great judgment one day, that's true. That's fixed, it says. Fixed as much as anything else is in this world in which God has created. Right now, Jesus is saying, but I'm still the Savior. I'm still, those, I'm still the person who has gotten up on the cross and paid the penalty for the sins. I'm still the one who was risen from the grave, displaying and demonstrating that everything which I said and did was true. And that's really the reason why we have the assurance to make that audacious claim about believing in Jesus and Jesus alone. Why? Because of the resurrection, church. Even though, right, we tend to only highlight sometimes the resurrection more pointedly around Easter, and we should, we have to be reminded all year long that the resurrection is everything to us. Yes, Christ on the cross. Let's talk about that. Let's remember that. Let's rejoice in what happened there for our behalf. But let's not take away the power of the resurrection. We're going to sing a song in just a few moments that talks about how the empty tomb still speaks. Because it still gives us assurance. It still reminds us that we can go into all places with the gospel because the resurrection is true. We can talk about Jesus as if he is alive because of the resurrection. And he's true. So let's not forget that. All right, real quickly, I'm almost done. In verse 32, we see three responses. Three responses. We see those who mocked, called it foolish, said this is ridiculous. This is a power play. And walked away. And that will continue to happen for us as we take the gospel into all places. It will. It will. But what I do know is that many of your stories started with that. That you used to hear the gospel and said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. But here you are. Because there's power in the gospel. But we also see those who were intrigued, right? They wanted to hear more. That's why we preach the gospel every single week. You want to come back and hear about more Christ? Guess what? We're going to be talking about Christ the next week. If you want to hear more the next week, come back. We're going to still be talking about him. I got one song, church. I'm just going to keep playing it. But we also see that there were some who believed. There were some who saw the idolatry in which they were putting their hope in. And they turned to God. It says they believed. And then the author Luke actually names names here. He says Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris. And here's what I want you guys to know is maybe you find yourself not quite sure, sure what you believe. But yet, hearing this, being reminded, you've finally been able to see who Christ is, who you are. Maybe those false gods in which you thought were going to lead to something. And you're like, it's, it's all, it's not true. And I would call you, as Paul did then, to believe, to trust him, to put your faith in Christ. This is a safe place to do that. We have to be honest. I hope the church is a, a, a place you can be honest. If it's not, we've got problems. 
but it's a church for sinners in need of a Savior. So if you think that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, you're in really good company. That's why I'm here. I know for many of you as well. Now, a little bit of fun info, though. Eusebius, who was a, he was an early church historian, he actually records that this man, Dionysius, the Areopagite, he actually ended up becoming the first bishop of the churches in Athens, leading these healthy gospel churches for a long time. Church, we never know what our conversations will lead to. We never know. It's really not up to us. We get to share. We get to take the gospel to all places. And what we even see here is God determines what he will do with that. And thanks be to him. You never know what those conversations will lead to. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do as a church? What does a a factor of us being a gospel church look like? Well, we're going to be committed to taking the gospel to all places. I'm not saying you have to try to go find a, a marketplace and try to draw a crowd. I know for many of you, that's like your worst nightmare in the world. Like, I don't want to talk to more than two people at a time, ever. But God has called you to all types of different arenas. He's called you right into the neighborhoods that you live in, to go to the family barbecues that you get to go to, the work parties, all these things. We can take the gospel there. Yeah. You'll have to do some contextualization, right? You'll have to figure out, okay, how can I do that winsomely and effectively? Especially for jobs, right, where there's, there's some serious, maybe, policies in the books about proselytizing, which is their fancy word of saying, don't tell me what to believe. You might have to be winsome in that, figuring out, okay, how do I do that? And I'd be happy to talk to you afterwards and maybe try to come up with some ideas of how can I be faithful in the places that you called me to? Take the gospel to all places. For you moms who have kids at home, maybe you, maybe, right, you're, you're young kids and they're at home, guess what? You have all of these little, little people just on your couch all the time that need to hear the gospel. You don't even have to leave the couch to take the gospel to all places. What a unique opportunity you get to tell them about Christ, to remind them of why you worship him and why you want their hope to be in him too. What a unique opportunity we all have, church. God has determined the allotted periods and times in which we live in. So let's take the gospel to all of those places. All right, that's all I got. Let's pray. Well, Father, as we end our time in your word, I just want to simply thank you once again. Thank you for giving us a gospel that we can take, a gospel which we can stand on. And that God, I, I do ask that for, even for the Christians in this room, that you would help us identify areas that we're prone to put our hope in. Maybe people or things. And then God, that we would repent of our own idolatry. And that every single one of us, we would, we would constantly be turning back to you because we are in desperate need of you. So, Father, it's in your mighty, powerful name and in the name of Christ, too, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, if you guys are able to, why don't you go and stand, and we're going to respond in a couple of ways, but we're going to start with song. So this is a new song to us.